0: Section 5 of the Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 2, Part 2. On the second day after the marriage, this little court set out from Dover, accompanied by the Duchess of Modena and Prince Rinaldo d'Este. They performed the journey overland to Gravesend, sleeping at Canterbury the first night, At Rochester the second the people everywhere expressing their joy upon the arrival of her royal highness the slow rate at which she traveled enabled everyone who wished to gratify their curiosity by obtaining a view of her it has been said with truth that a little beauty goes a great way with queens and princesses but mary of modena was descended from families in which nobility of person was a hereditary gift the royal and commanding lineaments of the princely house of Veste were in her softened and blended with the captivating graces of the more humbly-born Mancini which had been transmitted to her by her maternal grandmother, the sister of Cardinal Mazarine. The portraits of Mary Beatrice bear an improved and chastened likeness to those of Hortense Mancini, whom Charles II loved well enough to offer to Mary, and James II has styled the most beautiful girl in the world the discretionary nature of the earl of peterborough's commission in choosing a bride for his royal friend and the surpassing charms of her whom he had selected elicited an elegant poem from the young earl of lansdowne of which the following lines may serve as a fair specimen the impartial judge surveys with vast delight all that the sun surrounds of fair and bright then strictly just he with adoring eyes to radiant este gives the glorious prize who could deserve like her in whom we see united all that paris found in three even a grave dignitary of the church of england the learned dr south who was one of the protestant chaplains of the duke of york was seized with a fit of poetic inspiration when the news of his royal patron's nuptials with the fair young flower of the historic line of este reached him The worthy doctor being then on a journey, composed an impromptu Latin ode on this auspicious theme, and wrote it down while on horseback, having no other desk than the neck of his steed, which on that occasion proved a veritable Pegasus to his reverence. The merry monarch attended by the principal lords and ladies of the court, went down the river in state in the royal barges on the 26th of November, to meet and compliment the newly wedded pair their royal highnesses having embarked at gravesend that morning with the duchess of modena and their noble attendants came up with the early tide when the two courts met on the broad waters of the thames the bridal party came on board the royal yacht his majesty received and welcomed his new sister-in-law with every demonstration of affection and they returned together the duchess of modena must have been an old acquaintance of the king and the duke of york she having resided at paris before her marriage at the time when they were in exile many a subject connected with mutual friends must they have had to discuss together while the strong personal resemblance of the bride to her cousin hortense mancini could scarcely fail of recalling the memory of his mourning years to the king mary beatrice was invariably treated with the greatest tenderness and consideration by her royal brother-in-law he was always kind to me, would she say in after years, and was so truly amiable and good-natured that I loved him very much, even before I became attached to my lord, the Duke of York. At noon, the royal party landed at Whitehall, and Mary Beatrice was presented in due form to the queen, by whom she was received in the kindest and most obliging manner. The reception of the young duchess on her first appearance at Whitehall was truly flattering, as she was treated with every mark of affection and distinction by their majesties, and with much respect by the great ladies of the court and all the royal party. Yet, observes Lord Peterborough, clouds hung heavy upon the brows of many others, who had a mind to punish what they could not prevent. It was impossible for anything to be more unpopular than the marriage of the heir presumptive to the crown with a Catholic princess, the disapprobation of Parliament had been loudly but fruitlessly expressed. The ribald political rhymesters, who had already assailed James with a variety of disgusting lampoons on the subject of his Italian alliance, were preparing to aim their coarse shafts at his bride. But when she appeared, her youth, her innocence, and surpassing loveliness disarmed even their malignity. They found no point for attack. From others, the young duchess received the most unbounded homage. Waller, though on the verge of seventy, wrote the following complimentary lines in her copy of Tasso. Tasso knew how the fairer sex to grace, but in no one durst all perfection place. In her alone, that owns this book is seen, Clorinda's spirit and her lofty mien, Soferina's piety, Erminia's truth, Armida's charms, her beauty and her youth, Our princess here, as in a glass, doth dress her well-taught mind, and every grace express, more to our wonder than Rinaldo fought, the hero's race excels the poet's thought. King Charles ordered a silver medal to be struck in honor of his brother's marriage, in which half-length portraits of James and his bride appear face to face, like Philip and Mary on a shilling. The disparity of their ages is strikingly apparent, for though the royal admiral was still in the meridian pride of manhood and reckoned at that time one of the finest men in his brother's court his handsome but sternly marked lineaments are in such strong contrast to the softness of contour delicate features and almost infantine expression of his youthful consort that no one would take them for husband and wife the dress of the young duchess is arranged with classical simplicity and her hair negligently bound up with a fillet, over which the rich profusion of ringlets fall negligently, as if with the weight of their own luxuriance, on either side of her face, and shade her graceful throat and bosom. A much finer medal of her was struck soon afterwards from one of her bridal portraits by Lely, of full length in the costume of a Grecian muse, only with more ample draperies, and the hair in flowing ringlets. The medal bears this inscription, Maria Beatrice, Eleonora Duquesa Ibora e Census As this princess was of that order of beauty to which the royal taste awarded the palm, and her natural charms were unmarred by vanity or affectation, she excited boundless admiration in the court of Charles II, where it was hoped that the purity of her manners and morals would have a restraining and beneficial effect. George Granville, earl of Lansdowne, in his poem on her marriage with the duke of York, pays her the following graceful compliment. Our future hopes from this blessed union rise, our present joy and safety from her eyes, those charming eyes that shine to reconcile, to harmony and peace, this stubborn isle. The noble young bard, at that time a student only in his thirteenth year, lived to see the lustre of those eyes, from which he caught his earliest spark of poetic inspiration, dimmed with long years of weeping, yet he always remained true to his first theme, and sang her praises as fervently in the dark days of her adversity as when her star first rose in its glittering ascendant, surrounded by so many glorious attributes and flattering hopes. St. James's palace had always been the residence of the Duke of York, and thither he conducted his new duchess, On the sixth of December, the French ambassador waited on their royal highnesses to compliment them on their marriage. The same day, the ambassador of Portugal, the Swedish and Danish envoys, the residents of Venice and Newburgh came to offer the congratulations of their respective courts on the same occasion, being introduced by Sir Charles Cotterell, the master of the ceremonies. The Duke and Duchess of York held their courts in Viz at this palace as regularly as the king and queen did theirs at Whitehall, but on different days. There was not, however, the slightest rivalry either intended or suspected. King Charles always said that the most loyal and virtuous portion of his courtiers were to be found in his brother's circle at St. James's Palace he was excessively fond of the company of his new sister-in-law, and occasionally did her the honor of presenting himself with other company at her levée, where he was wont to amuse himself, not only with the floating news of the day, but in discussing the affairs of the nation. Sir John Raresby, in his memoirs, mentions, that on the 18th of March, he entertained his majesty a long time in the Duchess of York's bedchamber, with what had been then transacting in the House of Commons. The proceedings here boded little good to the heir of the crown and his consort. Much was said of the dangers to be apprehended from this popish marriage, and sternly was the exercise of the penal laws insisted upon. It was even forbidden for any popish recusant to walk in the park or to enter St. James's palace under any pretense it had been stipulated in her marriage articles that the duchess of york was to enjoy the use of the catholic chapel at st james's which had been fitted up by the queen-mother henrietta for herself and her household but charles the second who was an attentive observer of the signs of the times perceiving that a great excitement prevailed among the populace at the idea of a second public establishment for the worship of the church of rome circumvented his brother and his young italian bride by setting the queen to claim it as one of her chapels this slight piece of diplomacy laid the foundation of a lasting coolness between mary beatrice and queen Catherine. there is reason to believe that the duchess of modena who was still with her daughter wrote to louis the fourteenth to complain of the infraction of the treaty to which he had been a guarantee for in the archives des Affaires, Paris there is an inedited letter addressed by james to that monarch in reply to an inquiry from him as to the manner the duchess of york was allowed to exercise her religion an apartment in st james's palace had been fitted up by charles's orders as an oratory or private chapel for the young duchess and her suite so that truth compelled james however dissatisfied with the arrangement to reply as he does in the following letter which as it was derived from a source only accessible through the courtesy of m guizot is here inserted the duke of york to king louis the fourteenth london the eighth of december sixteen seventy three monsieur as the duchess of modena has informed me that it will be desirable that i should give your majesty some account of the manner in which the duchess of york enjoys the exercise of her religion i have her permission to inform you that she enjoys here the free exercise of the catholic apostolic and roman faith in the same manner that the queen does here at this present time for herself and her household and that the king my brother will have the same care for her and all her people in regard to the catholic religion that he has for the queen and her suite your letter being confined to this sole subject i will not trouble your majesty further at present than to assure you that i am with all respect imaginable sir your majesty's very affectionate brother cousin and servant james from the dry laconic style of the above letter it may easily be perceived that james neither approved of the dictation of his mother-in-law the duchess of modena nor the interference of his royal kinsman of france yet the manner in which he has noted in his own journal the refusal of st james's chapel to his duchess shows that he regarded it as a great affront to her charles however acted more as the friend of the duchess of york in withholding the indulgence from her than if he had granted it well knowing that the less conspicuously the ceremonials of her religion were practised the greater would be the chance of her enjoying the affections of the people The Duchess of Modena, who had spent six weeks with her daughter, was compelled to return to her own country, in consequence of the intrigues that had been set on foot against her during her absence. Her presence in England had not been conducive to the conjugal happiness of the newly wedded pair, and there had been some disputes between her and the English Duchesses on the subject of precedence. She departed from England December 30th. Forty years afterwards, Mary Beatrice spoke of this separation from her mother as the greatest trial she had ever known at that period of her life. But, added she, after her departure, I became very much attached to the late king, my husband, who was then Duke of York, and my affection for him increased with every year that we lived together, and received no interruption to the end of his life. Her fondness for him at that time, she confessed amounted to an engrossing passion which interfered with her spiritual duties for she thought more of pleasing him than serving her god and that it was sinful for any one to love an earthly creature as she had loved her husband but that her fault brought its own punishment in the pain she suffered at discovering that she was not the exclusive object of his regard james had unhappily formed habits and connections disgraceful to himself and inimical to the peace of his youthful consort his conduct with several of the married ladies of the court even with those in her own household afforded great cause for scandal and of course there were busy tongues eager to whisper every story of the kind to his bride if mary beatrice had been a few years older at the time of her marriage she would have understood the value of her own charms and instead of assailing her faithless lord with tears and passionate reproaches she would have endeavoured to win him from her rivals by the graceful arts of captivation for which she was well qualified james was proud of her beauty and flattered by her jealousy he treated her with unbounded indulgence as she herself acknowledged but there was so little difference in age between her and his eldest daughter that he appears only to have regarded her as a full-grown child or a plaything till the moral dignity of her character became developed by the force of circumstances, and he learned to look up to her with that admiration and respect which her virtues were calculated to excite. This triumph was not easily or quickly won. Many a heartache, and many a trial, had Mary Beatrice to endure before that day arrived. Her own path, in the meantime, was beset with difficulties. Ignorant as she was of the manners and customs of England, she was compelled to submit to the guidance of those ladies whom the duke her husband had appointed to assist her with their advice and instruction as he was desirous that she should conform to the usages of the english court beset and other gambling games were then in high vogue in the beau monde mary beatrice disliked cards and was terrified at the idea of high play but her ladies told her she must do as others did or she would become unpopular and excite ridicule and by their importunities, prevailed over her reluctance. Like most young people, under similar circumstances, she lost her money at the card table, without deriving the slightest pleasure from the game, and as this happened very frequently, it devoured those sums which ought to have been applied to better purposes. I suffered, she would say, in after years great pain from my losses at play and all for want of a little more firmness in not positively refusing to comply with a custom which those who were so much older than myself told me i was not at liberty to decline i shall always regret my weakness since it deprived me of the means of doing the good i ought to have done at that time such was the ingenuous acknowledgment made nearly forty years afterwards by that princess of an early error which her sensitive conscience taught her to regard as a crime to the end of her life how generally blameless her conduct was at the tender age when she was torn from her peaceful convent to become the wife of a careless husband whose years nearly troubled her own and the stepmother of princesses old enough to be her sisters may be perceived even from the unfriendly evidence of bishop burnet himself she was says he a very graceful person with a good measure of beauty and so much wit and cunning that during all this reign she behaved herself in so obliging a manner and seemed so innocent and good that she gained upon all that came near her and possessed them with such impressions of her that it was long before her behavior after she was queen could make them change their thoughts of her so artificially did this young italian behave herself that she deceived even the eldest and most jealous persons both in court and country only sometimes a satirical temper broke out too much which was imputed to youth and wit not enough practice to the world she avoided the appearance of a zealot or of a meddler in business and gave herself up to innocent cheerfulness and was universally esteemed and beloved as long as she was duchess upwards of twelve years rather a trying period for the most practised of hypocrites to have supported the part which this candid divine attributes to an inexperienced girl who commenced her career in public life at fifteen if mary beatrice had at that tender age acquired not only the arts of simulation and dissimulation in such perfection but the absolute control over every bad passion which burnet imputes to her so as to deceive the most watchful of her foes and to conciliate the love and esteem of all who came near her she might assuredly have governed the whole world unfortunately for herself this princess was singularly deficient in the useful power of concealing her feelings it is impossible to refrain from smiling at the idea of any one attributing policy so profound to the unsophisticated child of nature who preferring the veil of a cloister votaress to the prospect of the crown matrimonial of england had interrupted the diplomatic courtship of a grave ambassador with passionate reproaches for his cruelty in endeavouring to marry her to his master against her inclination and with tearful earnestness intimated how much more suitable and welcome the alliance would be to her maiden aunt than to herself and was too little practised in deception to be able to conceal either her disinclination to her consort in the first instance or her too ardent affection for him after he had succeeded in winning her virgin love if then so young a creature whose greatest fault was her proneness to yield to the impulse of her feelings conducted herself for 12 years so perfectly as not to give cause for complaint to any one not even to her step-daughters the natural inference is that she acted under the influence of more conscientious motives than those which guided the pen of her calumniator soon after the departure of the duchess of modena the duke of york made a progress with his bride to show her several places of interest in her new country among the rest he conducted her to cambridge where she was received with signal honours by the university and the young lord lansdowne enjoyed the satisfaction of reciting to her royal highness a poem which he had composed on the occasion full of compliments both to her and the duke When they returned to town, Burnett, who was honored with a private interview with James, says that his royal highness commended his new duchess much. On the 18th of May, 1674, the Dutch ambassadors, after making their public entry and receiving audience from the king, were introduced by Sir Charles Cotterell into the presence of the Duke and Duchess in their apartments in Whitehall. Two days later, the king and queen, accompanied by their royal highnesses, left town for windsor with the intention of passing some time there mary beatrice applied herself to the study of the english language to such good purpose that she soon became a perfect mistress of all its intricacies and not only spoke read and wrote it with fluency but was able to appreciate the literature of that augustan age she had both the good taste and the good policy to pay distinguishing attention to persons of literary talent she took great pleasure in the conversation of the aged Waller, and playfully commanded him to write. That he had not lost the talent for making poetry the vehicle for graceful compliments, which distinguished his early productions, may be seen by the elegant lines addressed to her royal highness, which he presented to her with a copy of his poems. After telling her that the verses in that volume celebrated the beauties of a former age, he says, thus we writ then your brighter eye inspire a nobler flame and raise our genius higher while we your wit and early knowledge fear to our productions we become severe your matchless beauty gives our fancy wing your judgment makes us careful how we sing lines not composed as heretofore in haste polished like marble shall like marble last and make you through as many ages shine as Tasso has the heroes of your line. Though other names our wary writers use, you are the subject of the British muse, dilating mischief to yourself unknown. Men write and die of wounds they dare not own. It was highly to the credit of so young a creature as Mary Beatrice, that her mind was too well regulated to be alloyed with the vanity which the flattering incense offered up to the shrine of her beauty, by the greatest wits of the age, was calculated to excite in a female heart. The purity of her manners and conduct entitled her to universal respect. It was observed in that wanton, licentious court, where voluptuousness stalked unmasked, and gloried in its shame, that the youthful Duchess of York afforded a bright example of feminine propriety and conjugal virtue. She appeared like a wedded Diane, walking through Paphian bowers in her calm purity. Dryden dedicated his State of Innocence to her, a dramatic poem, founded on Milton's Paradise Lost, after complimenting her on her descent from the illustrious family of Este. Princes who were immortalized even more by their patronage of Tasso and Ariosto than by their heroic deeds. He goes on to pay many personal compliments to herself, assuring her that she is never seen without being blessed and that she blesses all who see her adding that although every one feels the power of her charms, she is adored with the deepest veneration, that of silence, for she is placed, both by her virtues and her exalted station, above all mortal wishes. The first year of her wedded life was spent by Mary Beatrice in a gay succession of feats and entertainments. While the court was at Windsor, in August sixteen seventy four, the Duke of York and his rival, Monmouth, amused their majesties, Her Royal Highness and the ladies, with a representation of the siege of Maestricht, a model of that city, with all its fortifications, having been erected in one of the meadows, at the foot of the long terrace. James and Monmouth, at the head of a little army of courtiers, conducted the attack, to show their skill in tactics. On Saturday night, the 21st, they made their approaches, opened trenches, and imitated the whole business of a siege. The city was defended with great spirit, prisoners were taken, mines sprung, cannonading took place, grenades were thrown, and the warlike pantomime lasted till three o'clock in the morning, affording a splendid and animating spectacle, which might be seen and heard to a considerable distance. It was the last pageant of a chivalric character, performed in the presence of royalty, or in which a British prince took a leading part. A prospect was then entertained of the Duchess of York, bringing an heir to England, but her first child proved a daughter, who was born at St. James's Palace on Sunday, January 10th, 1675, five and twenty minutes after four o'clock in the afternoon. Some little disappointment, on account of the sex of the infant, is betrayed by the Duke of York in announcing the event to his nephew, the Prince of Orange. He says, i believe you will not be sorry to hear of the duchess being safely delivered it is but a daughter but god be praised they are both very well mary beatrice was of course desirous that her first-born should be brought up in the religion which she had been taught to venerate above all others her husband though he desired it no less knew that it was impossible and explained to her that their children were the property of the nation and that soon after their marriage It had been moved in Parliament that they should be brought up in the established religion of the realm, like his two elder daughters, the princesses Mary and Anne, or they would be taken from them and placed under the care of others. It was, besides, the pleasure of the king to which they must submit. The youthful mother, like a rash, inconsiderate girl as she was, determined to have her own way in spite of king, bishops, and Parliament. A few hours after the birth of her babe, she took an opportunity of sending for her confessor, Father Gallus, and persuaded him to baptize it privately on her own bed, according to the rites of the Church of Rome. When her royal brother-in-law, King James, came to discuss with her and his brother the arrangements for the christening of the newborn princess, Mary Beatrice told him exultingly that her daughter was already baptized. King Charles treated the communication with absolute indifference, and without paying the slightest regard to the tears and expostulations of the young mother who was terrified at the thought of having been the means of incurring a sacrilege through the reiteration of the baptismal sacrament he ordered the little princess to be borne with all due solemnity to the chapel royal and had her christened there by a protestant bishop according to the rites of the church of england she was given the names of catherine laura out of compliment to the queen and the duchess of modena Her sponsors were her elder sisters, the princesses Mary and Anne, and the Duke of Monmouth. Her previous admission into the Church of Rome by Father Gallus was kept a profound secret. If it had been known, it would probably have cost that ecclesiastic dear, and might have been very injurious to both the Duke and the Duchess of York. This fact was divulged by Mary Beatrice herself to the abbess and nuns of Chalot. She said, that she was very much terrified afterwards at what she had done but that father gallus had consoled her by the assurance that she had not incurred as she feared a deadly sin charles the second who was still greatly annoyed at the irreparable manner in which his brother had injured his prospects and deprived both himself and his country of his services by forsaking the communion of the church of england for that of rome must have regarded the catholic baptism of a new-born princess as an especial piece of perversity on the part of his sister-in-law he was too good-natured however to agitate her by any serious manifestations of displeasure having had a catholic mother he was able to make allowances for the imprudent but natural zeal of a young romantic girl of sixteen who having been educated in a convent could scarcely form an idea of the adverse feeling with which the rites of her religion were regarded by the majority of the people of england at that period scarcely a fortnight after this occurrence a council was held at lambeth for the purpose of putting in force the statutes against recusancy and six very severe orders against roman catholics and dissenters were published by proclamation one of which prohibited any british subject from officiating as a romish priest either in the queen's chapel or elsewhere and another forbade any papist, or reputed papist, from entering Whitehall or St. James's Palace, under the penalty, if a peer, of imprisonment in the tower, if of a lower rank, in one of the common jails. The latter decree placed Mary Beatrice almost in a state of isolation, and must have been regarded as a great hardship by her and the Roman Catholic ladies of her household. The Duke of York remonstrated, but as this was intended for his especial annoyance, his complaints availed nothing. The Duchess took everything quietly, happy in a mother's first sweet cares, and loving her husband with the most passionate affection, she lived on terms of perfect amity with his daughters. Neither of these princesses ever accused Mary Beatrice of the slightest instance of unkindness to them, no, not even in justification of their subsequent ill-treatment of her. Her conduct as a stepmother must, of course, have been irreproachable the first serious annoyance that befell the duchess of york was the attempt of a french felon pretending to be a protestant convert and calling himself lucency to bring her name malignantly before the public by deposing that saint-germain a roman catholic priest whom he termed the confessor of her royal highness had come to his lodgings one morning and holding a poignard to his breast threatened to stab him unless he signed a recantation This story was brought before the House of Commons by Lord William Russell and was made the pretext of additional severities against papists. Lusancy was examined before a committee of the house where he stated, in addition to his marvellous tale, that he had learned from some French merchants that, in a short time, Protestant blood would flow through the streets of London, that the king was at heart a Catholic. And many other particulars calculated to alarm the timid and inflame the ignorant. This man was the precursor of Titus Oates, only not possessed of sufficient effrontery to stand his ground. After du Marisquet, a conscientious French Protestant minister, who was acquainted with the impostor's parentage and career of infamy in his own country, had the courage and honesty to expose him, which put an end to his credit with Parliament. Yet such was the blindness of party prejudice, that Compton, Bishop of London, sent the disgraced adventurer to Oxford, and although he involved himself in a swindling transaction while there he ordained him as a priest of the church of england and made him a vicar of dover court in essex in the midst of the agitation and alarm caused by the false witness of the french impostor mary beatrice was suddenly bereaved of her first-born child the little princess catherine who died of a convulsive fit on the third of october sixteen seventy five having nearly attained the attractive age of ten months she was interred on the fifth of the same month in the vault of mary queen of scots in westminster abbey whatever might be the grief of the youthful mother for the loss of her infant she was compelled to dry her tears and appear in public very soon after this afflicting event she was present with her husband and his two daughters the princesses mary and anne at the lord mayor's feast that year which was also honored by the presence of the king and queen there is also mentioned in Evelyn of a very grand ball given by Her Royal Highness on the 4th of December at St. James's Palace. The arrival of the Duchess of Mazarin in England this year was an inauspicious event for Mary Beatrice, of whom that errant lady and famous beauty, as she is styled by Evelyn, was a disreputable family connection on the maternal side. On account of her near relationship to the Duchess of Modena and some friendly reminiscences, Perchance, connected with the beautiful Hortense Mancini and his early days, James had the false complacence to permit his consort to visit this dangerous intrigant, even when she became one of the avowed mistresses of the king, his brother, and openly defied all restraints, both of religion and morality. The first great mortification that resulted to the Duke and Duchess of York from this ill-judged proceeding was an impudent remonstrance from the Duchess of Portsmouth to James that his consort paid her no attention to which she considered herself as much entitled as madame mazarin there was certainly no other ground on which this bold bad woman could have presumed even to intrude her name on a princess like mary beatrice the result was that to avoid the inference of charles's favourite sultana that the duke and duchess of york patronized a rival mistress because she was the cousin of her royal highness and all the other coarse observations to which they had exposed themselves by their folly james took his young innocent wife to pay portsmouth a visit they met the king at her apartments who rewarded his sister-in-law for the reluctant concession she had made by saying a thousand obliging things to her the queen gave a grand ball that night and the king thought proper to dress in the apartments of the duchess of portsmouth where the duke and duchess of york left him Some busy spy in the court hastened to whisper to her majesty the almost incredible tale that the Duchess of York had visited my lady of Portsmouth. The same evening, said Mary Beatrice, from whose lips this incident was chronicled. When I met her majesty in the dance and made a profound curtsy to her, which was the custom on such occasions, instead of acknowledging it, she scornfully turned her back on me before the whole court a very natural manifestation of her sense of the impropriety of which the young duchess had been guilty yet her royal highness had no choice in the matter being wholly under the guidance of a husband five-and-twenty years older than herself the error committed by james in permitting his consort to have the slightest intercourse with madame mazarin was one of those apparently trivial causes which produced an evil influence on his destiny and that of his family he stood at that period on broken ground. Every false step he made rendered his footing more difficult to maintain, and he had now incurred for himself in his duchess the enmity of the Duchess of Portsmouth and the displeasure of the queen. To have been the means of bringing his consort into collision with either of those ladies was very ill-judged. The queen was the natural protectress of her young sister-in-law. They were members of the same church, And ought to have been firmly united in friendship the duchess of york would have been more respected by the virtuous matronage of england if she had steadfastly refused to countenance any of the title courtesans whom charles the second to his eternal disgrace had forced into the presence of his queen her only safe and dignified course would have been to have appeared unconscious of their existence and never to have permitted their names to be mentioned to her but by countenancing one and that one of her relation she deprived herself of the power of saying that it was against her principles to receive or visit any woman of infamous life and afforded grounds for the accusation of partiality and pride the duchess of portsmouth was one of the most subtle and mischievous of all the tools employed by shaftesbury and his coadjutors to effect the ruin of the duke of york if it had not been for her pernicious influence with the king james might have defied their utmost malice but she was the treacherous delilah who constantly wept before samson till he had confided to her the secret wherein his strength lay and thus enabled his foes to bind and make sport of him in other words to paralyze the power of the crown by possessing themselves through this woman of the political defences of the king and the duke and thus to frustrate all their measures so great was her effrontery that at the very time she was laboring to assist Shaftesbury and Russell in effecting the Duke of York's exclusion from the royal succession. She impudently demanded of his royal highness attentions and marks of respect from his consort, and it was found impossible to satisfy her presumptuous ideas of her own consequence with common conventional civilities. Nothing in fact is ever gained, even in a worldly point of view, by condescending to the really base, it is impossible ever to stoop low enough to please them for persons who are conscious of deserving contempt will always despise those from whom they exact a reluctant civility and in this they are right since they must be aware of its insincerity end of section five